grad scientists and where to find them. Seriously misunderstood creatures. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Hello, 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 and welcome to Grad Scientists and Where to Find Them. This is great. We haven't even started and we have two dead, ready to laugh people. This is going to be a long podcast. So, so <laughs> uh, welcome to this podcast. It's a new episode. I welcome today Angela. Angela, welcome. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Could you tell I'm trying us? Trying to modulate my voice. Yeah, it's very good. You, you can speak a bit oh, closer okay, to the mic. Okay. Um, uh, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? I am a PhD student at the School of Communication Disorders. Very good. And I also welcome Heather. Hello. Welcome, Heather. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure. So I previously finished the clinical program here at McGill, and I continued on with a master's thesis project, which means that I basically stayed an extra eight months to get a letter taken from my degree. The clinical program in? Speech-language pathology. Okay. I know that, but some people here may don't. not. <laughs> uh, all right. And, uh, well, who wants to start talking about their own research? Angela? Okay. I Yeah, so I'm kind of, I'm in my first year of my PhD, so early days, but mm -hmm. I've worked as a speech-language pathologist for eight years, primarily with uh, children on the autism spectrum. So after a bit of time, I was really interested in terms of clinically-based research and evidence-based practice that uh, could be implemented with this population. So I looked into starting my PhD. I applied. I got in, I started, and uh, yeah, many steps. And what I'm hoping to do is do research on uh, children that are minimally verbal, that use basically adapted sign or communicate by passing a picture or communicate by using like uh, communication-based apps on iPads mm -hmm. or an Android device and just trying to figure out how that we can actually get them to learn how to use that as a communication device, but at the same time still promote and work on strategies to get them more verbal as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, because it's really hard in research, and I, I shouldn't say even research, it's a clinical practice. It's a big challenge mm -hmm. that SLPs face. So, anyhow, Absolutely. so most of the stuff that I'm doing is, uh, yeah, thanks, Heather, uh, <laughs> is, is trying to be, like, uh, focused around clinicians and what I can do, to, what research so I can give for that. something that's directly applicable to... Yeah, exactly. Clinical, clinical so you can work. take out and you can use right away oh. in your clinic. You what know? a beautiful thing. <laughs> Isn't that what we all hope for? So, but, so what, uh, what kind of... Um, I was going to say, what kind of kids... Yeah, kids with autism. Yeah, yeah. Like what? You, what's kind of uh, the age range? Usually? Age range um, right now would probably be preschool, so like maybe like three to four years old, because at that age there's a lot of what's called um, EIBI, so it's early intensive behavioral intervention. So that's where kids that get a diagnosis of autism get uh, an intensive amount of behavior therapy. So it's usually like twenty, sometimes upwards of forty hours a week. And usually that kind of gives them a boost in terms of kind of getting them caught up with um, on lots of different skills, including communication. But it could also be things like feeding, um, working on plans to go into like the community, like say they're having trouble and struggling with like their parents bring them to the grocery store because they're mm -hmm. having a meltdown. So 
yeah, those programs. So the stuff I would work on, the research and clinical intervention questions I would have would be applicable to that type of setting because um, mm -hmm. that's been primarily my experience up to now. So how, how, do, how do you go about that? And uh, I mean, I guess maybe you're only in early stages, but in terms of experimental setting, how do you, your children, what do you test? Yeah, so for me, intervention studies, they generally have like a group design or an RCT, so randomized control design. But for me, I'm mostly focused on using single subject research design. So it's kind of more nitpicky, small scale, super analytical research that basically you have a small set of participants. So I'd probably only be recruiting, I would say I'd be doing like two different studies, but maybe only aiming to pick up like six kids, but then six kids that have a really specific profile. So mm -hmm. on top of them having autism, they would also have to have like below a certain amount of words that they can express like verbally. So it ends up that that type of clientele is usually hard to find and yeah. recruit for studies. Mm -hmm. And they're so variable that that type of design tends to work well. Okay. And would you like follow them? Like, is it sort of like a longitudinal study? So it's not necessarily a longitudinal study, but what we would do would be, so for example, say we were trying to work on, I'm just make this up, but if we're trying <laughs> to teach them to use their iPad for different words and try to vocalize at the same time, well, what I would do is we would set up target words and then follow them through those target words through time. But that study might take up to eight months because this, again, this profile of kid takes a longer time to learn. Um, but yeah, so it wouldn't be necessarily be longitudinal because you wouldn't be checking in at different time points. It would be like following them pretty continuously okay. for eight months. How often would they be receiving therapy? So that's Is that all standardized here at the SCSD? Yeah, so I would be, I'm lucky enough, again, as being practicing SLP to have some good clinical contacts in the city. So I'm actually hoping to do the research on site there. So it makes Perfect. it a little bit easier for recruitment and attendance and things like that. That's um, like more naturalistic too because yeah. it's an environment that the kids would be in and exactly so you can yeah kind of compare it to controls even because... yeah exactly oh. um i i find group designs really helpful but sometimes there's always a segment of the population of kids that are on the spectrum that don't respond to the treatment you know they're always mm -hmm. that blip and that's again the the type of kids that i'm looking to kind of pick apart and figure out yeah. what works best for them. Yeah. So, yeah, because yeah, the spectrum is just so wide, right? It's it is. It's so difficult to just yeah. say yeah. like, well, this is what's going to happen. You can't yeah, really do it's that. definitely not a one-size-fits-all, and it's definitely a very, very diverse uh, community. Well, and often I, fe I feel like, too, the inclusion and exclusion criteria of a lot of bigger group designs really do just kind of filter out some of these cases that make it, that we see clinically a lot. And then you kind of go, well, what do I do? Yeah, I don't have any research that includes this population. Exactly. So that's a good thing. Like, again, with the single subject design is the how you write it out. It's like very prescribed and very, mm -hmm. very detailed, like very detailed. Like you could even like map it out all the definitions they've used for different strategies. And that you're completely right, because a lot of the literature I've been reading is uh, been coming out and saying that, well, they exclude a certain segment of kids um, that are usually more affected. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there's just not a lot of research on that uh, end of the spectrum, I guess. 
The tails, you know? The tails. <laughs> the cool. tails of that spectrum. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we want everything. We need to know a little more about them. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh because you told me... Well, I, you didn't tell me not to laugh. You can't tell me laugh. We are here. Laugh laugh loud, but just like don't laugh like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm assuming that'll be edited out. Yeah, I will. For sure. For sure. <laughs> it's been a long... It's been I'm a really long hoping there's months. a blooper reel at the end of ours. <laughs> a bloop. It'll be like... <laughs> Yeah, okay, so, but that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> Back to are you, um, are you done? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess so now. <laughs> he just shot me, that's for the, all of you listening. That's not what I meant. He just shot me a death stare and said, are you done? No, no, I meant like, his, his, I meant it's like, do you have more to say? Do we switch to Heather? Are you done? <laughs> yes, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Heather, then. Hey. Your turn. Can you tell us about your research? Cool. Yeah. So um, I took on an eight-month project, uh, which basically I came into it where it had already been designed and the ethics had already been in- approved, which was great for the timeline I was looking at because, I mean, if we hadn't had ethics approval, likely I would still be doing the research. But luckily, it was a project that Ellen had thought of and really wanted to get going on. And Ellen she just being your PI. Being my PI, my supervisor, yeah. primary investigator, yeah. these words. Yeah. So, yes. So my supervisor, she kind of came up with the project and just needed some bodies to implement the research and go out and collect the data and analyze it and, you know, crunch it all up and make it useful for clinicians. Mm -hmm. So I thought the project sounded fantastic. So I took it on. Basically, what we were looking at is identifying language impairment in kids who are older. Basically, the research these days, once you hit about nine years old, There's a particular tool that's used pretty commonly called non-word repetition. So it just involves playing a set of nonsense syllables and having the person repeat them back. Can we have an example? That's not a bad one. Um, (laughs) Usually they follow the phonotactics of the given language. So in English, it would sound somewhat like an English word. So something like glistering. I think that's an actual one that's in an English non-word test, which actually turns Mm. out to be a real word and the authors didn't know it. So fun fact. (laughs) But um, in any case. Learn everything in this podcast. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, for example, um, one of the ones in ours would be like veli in French. So it kind of sounds like it could be a real word. It isn't. And uh, so the recording plays it, the child repeats it. But what we found through the research is that as the non-word length increases, kids typically get worse at repeating them. But when they hit about nine or 10 years old, even with, you know, a five-syllable non-word, it's, they're repeating it at almost 100%. Mm-hmm. And so it means that um, when we're trying to compare that to the kids who have language impairment, who typically perform much lower accuracy than the kids without language impairment, once they're nine or 10 years old, the gap gets a lot smaller And it got to the point where in lots of research, there was no significant difference between these two groups, meaning Mm -hmm. that these tests are not diagnostic. So we were like, okay, well, if length affects accuracy, let's make them longer. So we made these super long non-words, and we had a bunch of kids repeat them. We had uh, 8-year-olds, 12-year-olds, and adults repeat them, all French speakers, uh, to see what would happen between these three groups. And then we also had bilingual children 
and children who have language impairment do that. And we just did a whole bunch of analyses to see if these groups were different from each other in their accuracy of repeating these words. Mm -hmm. Drum roll for the results. Fun fact, eight-year-olds and 12-year-olds do not perform differently on these. They actually perform at a really high, really high um, accuracy, way higher than we thought. But the adults do perform almost like almost at ceiling, which means they almost all perform almost 100%. I think the average was something like 97% accuracy for over wow. the, all the adults that we tested. And that's even with these eight-syllable non-words that are like they were really hard to repeat. Go adults. Go adults. <laughs> but, but I mean, what was really surprising was that, you know, eight-year-olds and 12-year-olds did not differ, but then somewhere between being 12 and being, like, a grown-up, kids were getting better yeah. at doing this. So, yeah. like, Things that's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a surprising result. But the good thing that we found was that by increasing the, the length of these words, we really did see that gap between the kids with language impairment and without language impairment was yeah. much bigger made it much more diagnostic. Fortunately, we didn't have a very big sample size, so we need a few more kids before we can publish anything really, really cool. But I got to write a thesis about it. Very nice. That's, it's really neat you bring that, bring that up because uh, we're getting ready to present a bunch of posters next week at the International Society of Autism. Anyways, it's a conference, and mm-hmm. there is Felix, who oh, yeah. is actually doing a similar thing, but with kids... Um, on the spectrum, but again, testing non-word repetition tasks for English dominant, French dominant, and Spanish. Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. His yeah. research is super cool. Yeah. Uh, I've been meaning to chat with him a little bit more in detail because his project and mine were really similar in a lot of ways. Um, one of the things that is kind of neat about non-word repetition is that neat in, in some interesting ways because as a clinician, you'd like it to be more specific, but it tends to be diagnostic for a huge range of difficulties. Mm. So it's often used really just as a screening tool to kind of say, okay, it's a first line of let's just see if we can pull out these kids who are having difficulties, you know? Mm. And so, you know, kids on the spectrum often will come out of that. Kids with phonological disorders, so even just like having trouble pronouncing some words, they'll come into this category. Kids with pure language impairment will come into the category. You know, it's one of the criticisms of the test is that it's kind of nonspecific, but at the same time, it's also like night and day. Like if these kids are having issues in like a lot of different realms of language, they cannot repeat words nearly as accurately as kids who are not. So it's it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. I talked a lot. No, no, no. (laughs) We're like we're way, way in the the range of things. I was going to say I had five to ten minutes. Yeah, it was very good. It's trying to stay structured. Yeah. No. I, wrote, I wrote a thesis, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I personally think it's really cool, especially because, again, as a speech language pathologist, I find it challenging to test uh, children who are bilingual. There's not a lot of stuff yeah. available. So even for that little reason, mm-hmm. I think it's a really nice tool because yeah. it's non-words. Exactly. And yeah, uh, I guess I didn't even mention that component. So there was that whole group where we tested the bilingual kids versus the not bilingual kids. Mm -hmm. And we were really specific in actually recruiting kids from welcoming classes here in Quebec. So for those of you who don't really know who's in a welcoming class, uh, it's often kids who have only been in Quebec for less than a year. Maybe they've repeated being in a welcoming class. So they've maybe been in Quebec for two years. Mm -hmm. So typically their first language is, well, it's definitely not French, 
because that's why they're there, but it's often not English either. And so it gives us a little window into these kids who are coming from, you know, a background where maybe we don't have a clinician who can even have any idea of what that home language is and whether it's developing typically or not. And then we know that their French isn't strong because they're just they just started learning it. And so, yeah, even in those groups, I would say just as a colloquial example, I had a, a an 11 year old whose first language was like an East Asian language. And, you know, she performed pretty much exactly the same as my pure francophones on that test when she was looking at me with the eyes of like, I'm not really sure I understand the instructions. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, so that's that, what the effect is for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because it's- I can look and go, hey, you just need to learn more French, you know, and, and you'll be, uh, I, <laughs> yeah, it, it works as a screening tool for even kids who are coming from like super diverse uh, language backgrounds. Yeah. Then, then how, how do you differentiate people that do not, do not perform well to, on this test because of memory problems instead of speech problems? Oh, <laughs> the reason I make that noise. No, it's a very good question. There's um, there's one particular research study where someone like really differentiated these different profiles of kids that had to do with language impairment, mm. memory stuff. They did a huge battery of nonverbal tests and they tried really hard to kind of differentiate. And I just remember the results of that research was like a bunch of Venn diagrams being like they all overlap. And it was really they weren't the able to really see At a certain point, it's like these memory components end up being so integral to retaining new words and language learning, right? So your ability to segment and like create motor plans for something you've never heard before is uh, related to your ability to break down new words from, you know, a word you've never heard is a Mm non-word, right? And so breaking that down, creating meaning, fitting it into your... I don't know, the schemas you have in your brain of what words you know and yeah, it's how like they really overlapping. It's just like when you when I have mm-hmm. a kid who has a certain diagnosis, they'll often have another one and another one, you know, mm-hmm. like they kind of all You get a diagnosis. You get a diagnosis. Everybody gets a diagnosis. That's a yeah, a day in the life. Yeah. I guess. Okay. So uh, I think it's time to move on to the next part. Uh, so the special topic of today, which uh, I thought would be, since both of you are SLPs, speech-language pathologists, uh, and so more on the clinical side than that veered towards a bit of a research-oriented uh, program, just talk about what it's like, uh, you know, to juggle between sort of like the two ends of science, you know. I don't know, talk about your background, what it's for. Can Well, before we delve into that, can you just, in just three words, just explain what is an SLP? Can we? Yeah, three um, words, speech, language, pathologist. Oh, thank you. That's exactly what I needed. Wow. Seriously. It's so simple. Can I have also, something? Re- also with... referred to as a speech therapist sometimes. Yeah. What's some other names that? Speechy. I don't know. Speech like that. teacher. Well, yeah. I get that. Speech Duh. teacher. Sometimes I just say orthophonist just yeah. because yeah. someone's French. And yeah. they don't. I, know it in, I know it in Latin America is a phonoaudiologia because I sometimes have clients who I'm like, Maybe you know this in there Spanish. Okay. In Spain, they use a different word. Okay. So Fun we'll fact. just assume that everybody knows what a speech-language pathologist is, and we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for, well, the, it's, thanks it's for a, clarifying okay. everything. It's Well, in a nutshell, it's essentially we're like 
typically like an allied health profession mm-hmm. that works on a Literacy. variety of areas that are related to communication and language and just try to make mm-hmm. it better. We have to do assessments, we have to do treatment, but it's super mm-hmm. variable in terms of the populations that we work with. Like you, in private, you were talking about working with uh, some voice clients recently. Yeah, I have a couple of voice clients. I have a lot of fluency clients, so, so stuttering. Like I have kids who are on the spectrum who just need some more of a boost because they get some in school and they get maybe some through their CLSC, but they want to have something weekly and they want to have like a, you know, a therapist who's there and kind of following them through and, and helping them navigate the system. Sometimes that's a big piece of yeah of what we're doing is referring onwards to other professionals. It's, and it's usually like a master's level program that lasts mm-hmm. between like two to three years. There's probably like yep. eight nine schools in Canada. Eight or nine schools. Yeah. Certainly eight or nine English-speaking schools. Yeah. So And then there's like two French. So it's really yeah. just like you give a bunch of synonyms or you just do a 10-minute explanation <laughs> yeah. of what the That's profession it. is. There's no yeah. in-between. <laughs> <It's> welcome. <Awesome>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we are specialists <laughs> in communication. <laughs> yeah. Very, Not very, communicating very well. Yeah. Very very <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, allied health professional, we assess and treat language and communication uh, often it's a lot more on the communication side than the language side because it's often about meeting the immediate needs of communications. And speech-language pathologists will refer to kids as kiddos. Yes. Very Fun important. fact. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> That's it. Okay. What am I supposed to do with this? Uh, <laughs> do you want us to start over? No. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll find a way to to edit that correctly. Well, okay. Um, Maybe we'll just he'll just like juxtapose us like you say something, I say something. He'll just like edit this like exactly. garbled mess. I'm Hilarious. sure it'll be it'll be nice. Uh, okay. Uh, well, so then, um, so main question is, what made you want to go into research? And while you were you, so you already had a degree in clinical uh, practice practicing. Why did you want to move into a more research program? There's not enough research. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, for me, it was that, you know, I had just finished the clinical program and I was sitting there kind of saying, wow, there's a lot of needs for having more for us to be able to do evidence-based practice. Mm-hmm. And I knew that, you know, just personally, I wasn't quite ready to start my first job full-time, nine to five, right out of school. I was feeling a little bit like, wanted to do something a little bit different before really getting into that. And so doing a research project really presented this perfect opportunity to take a little, you know, breather before entering clinical practice. And in the meantime, really focus in on a project that would be really clinically relevant for myself and for my colleagues, and especially in a place like Montreal, where there's a lot of need for bilingual research and there was the perfect opportunity to do it here. Very nice. So what about you, Angela? What what made you want to go into research? In? Um, so what I would say is I was thinking about it for a number of years and kind of similar to Heather that there's not a lot of research out there, especially very applicable research, because sometimes you can read an article um, about, for example, bilingualism, let's we'll take an example, and you know the characteristics, but it's not necessarily helpful in your day-to-day. Mm-hmm. And your day-to-day is like very go, go, go. There's like, you're getting lots of clients that you're like, I don't know what to do with this person mm-hmm. and I really want to help them. Because so, you, uh, just sorry, jumping yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. So in contrast to Heather, you've been practicing for a while. Yeah, right? yeah I've been practicing for about eight years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, so that's what I would say is I was always kind of like had it in the back of my mind. But in moving here, because I've only been here for two years, I thought I would apply because I was like, okay, this is the, the time and I'm in a good place. And I, and this is the, uh, our department, the School of Communication Disorders has the biggest research department in this field, I think, in Canada, mm. I believe. So it's a big driver for yeah. coming here as a as yeah. a clinical student as well. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So I just wanted to get in that way to kind of feed back and feed forward. And also, too, you're always doing stuff where sometimes clinicians are doing things that are a little bit ahead of the edge of what's being printed in articles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I think there's just not enough clinicians doing research. I wish there was more. So, like, so a, lot, yeah. a lot of work is just with intuition more than... Yeah, well, because sometimes you just have, like, a you have a kid today that's, like, mm-hmm. in your office right now. You have to do help, something. And you look up stuff and you can't find something. So you kind of have to mishmash and put together different evidence-based practices together to form something. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So oh. that's generally why. How is it going back to back to school after such a long time just working um, your job? It's weird. Some things have changed, like, not to date myself, but, like, now you can actually, like, generate citations through, like, software. <laughs> like, I used to have to type them, everybody. So, yeah. But, yeah. That's just, What it's an cool. editing nightmare. Yeah. Really not the answer I was expecting. <laughs> it's a very specific. Oh, the worst thing about going back to school is just... Man, learning new citations stuff. It, it's at the because end of my I was talking no, 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 to someone it, today like, about it. It's really, it's like, trust me, it <laughs> took a long time. So I felt when I came back, I was like, man, so many things have changed. But uh, I, yeah, oh, this is so crazy. But it's really fun. I like it. And I also like doing my two days a week in the clinic because then I kind of straddle two worlds and it's it's nice because then I can kind of do my thing and just like do the mm-hmm like practice and just doing what I've been doing for the past eight years. But then I get to spend a bunch of other time just like focusing on like thinking about clinical questions. And yeah. Well, thanks yeah. for stealing my next question. I was oh. just going to ask, uh, yeah. how, how does it work since so both of you are working at the same time as you're mm-hmm. doing your research mm-hmm. or were because either you're not. I handed in my initial exactly. submission last week. Yay. But so how is it just, um, yeah, just having on one side sort of a more classic uh, or like clinical job, and on the other mm-hmm. hand, something that's really more student student research life. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, uh, I took a position in a private practice, so it meant that I kind of make my own hours. I had given my boss certain days of the week that I was available to be scheduled, but even within that, often clients want to have early morning or evening appointments, so I often had some daytime as well availability uh, to, you know, keep up with paperwork and kind of just really focus on my clinical stuff on the days I was working in the clinic. And then, you know, I was off testing folks either in public libraries or at partner schools or that sort of thing, because a big part of my project was to recruit and test individuals. So again, that was kind of outside of school hours. It was on the weekends. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was a lot of just balancing, you know, having my multiple schedules all on in one place so that I always knew where to be and what materials I had to have with me because, you know, some days I needed all my clinical materials and all my lab materials. Some days I needed none of these things, you mm-hmm. know. So it was a lot of just staying organized and running around and yeah, kind of keeping it all together. But, like, no. it's important. And I find like, if you're, 
that type of person too. It's like mm-hmm. I like having clinical time because it feeds the research and yeah. it kind of goes back and forth and ends and forth. Questions. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna ask do you. Find there's a lot of overlap <laughs> between the yeah yeah you know? yeah like yeah. You, you like it helps doing the clinical work helps you give you ideas on your research and your research also mm-hmm. guides your yeah in, I would in agree. such a direct manner. Yeah, well, because I would say that well, all the questions that I've have in my mind that I want to answer um, are completely driven by stuff that I actually looked up and I couldn't find any good information on. So I was like, oh, I should probably put this research paper this. together. Yeah, <laughs> research this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would definitely, I don't know what you would say. Mm-hmm. For me, because I had kind of a, you know, a very delineated kind of project, what I found was the nicest part about being in the research domain, I guess, was that I had all of these cool people around me who were doing all of these really interesting projects. And so not only did I have the research from my own project, but I could go chat with people, collaborate and like get more ideas for what other people are are looking into in the department. And I found that having those resources available made me feel so much more confident going into the clinic. And, you know, uh, I have a very diverse caseload as far as um, private practice is concerned. So knowing, you know, if I have a question about children on the spectrum, I can go ask Angela. If I have a question about voice, I can go ask someone who's doing research in voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so having all these resources available to me where it's, you know, on the front lines and really where the research is happening. And I, I, I found that really empowering, especially as a beginning clinician. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's an experience you, an experience you would recommend to all, all clinicians do a bit of research. Yeah. Before. Well, as long as there's like cool research people around them. Yeah. Don't yeah. Just, and you need to have a question that kind of, like, you're interested in. But it's, like, mm-hmm. it's not all, like, rainbows. Like, there's a lot of hard stuff with this. For like, sure. it's, like... Mm-hmm. Late rain- nights, long. Yeah. It's, like, it's... I slogging think when through. you're balancing two things, it's, like, really long. Like, I work most weekends, and I work most, like, mm-hmm. evenings. Like, yeah, I was even telling you that today. Yeah. Yeah. Because we are office mates, by the way. I don't know if you... Ooh. Fun fact. <laughs> when I, <laughs> That's when how I struggle recruiting pe- strangers, hey. I just struggle recruit my office mate. Yeah, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like in my head I had said, you know, oh, I'll do two days a week in the clinic and three days a week research. And then I realized it was coming out a lot more like two and a half days a week at the clinic, five and a half days research. And you just go, I don't even know if there are this many days in the week. Oh, there <laughs> aren't. Oh. No, but it's really hard to compartmentalize because sometimes yeah. I'm like, oh, I want to get this thing out or schedule this extra parent training session. But then I have to make sure that I'm pushing along stuff that's happening at school so I don't mm-hmm. fall behind on that and don't disappoint people here in the yeah. lab. So it is it is mm-hmm. like a balancing act. But yeah. I definitely would say it's like completely worth it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I like yeah. also, I would say too, it's nice to be on the outsides of like your I find when you're in school and when I used to be just in school, I've experienced that where you're like in this insular bubble. Yeah. Totally. So it's actually nice to have like time outside. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. definitely I people do that, but like I go out and like I spend like two full days out and I, I find that's a good fit for me. I completely agree. I found too, I mean, even when I was applying for jobs, a big part of it was I was like, wow. I have a lot of trouble uh, because if your research project is the only thing you have, uh, for, for me and the way my personality is and the way my work ethic goes, I kind of felt like I could never turn it off. And so I was thinking about it on the weekends, even if I wasn't working on it. And I was, it, it just kind of was constantly on my mind. And as soon as I had other uh, responsibilities, 
I was so much better at being able to say, okay, today I'm working on this. Today I'm working on something different. Mm -hmm. And I could put those things that actually weren't that important at that time. I could put them out of my mind because there was something important to worry about. So yeah, I agree. All right, so time for the game. Can I have a little game jingle going on? Okay, so game of today. Game of today is gonna be very simple. Two truths, no, two lies, one truth. So we all work with human subjects either during our experiments or as like clients or patients in your clinical work. So, of course, working with humans, uh, it always leads to very funny, funny experiences. So, uh, let's play Two Lies, One Truth with basically something that happened with people, participants, or clients, or patients. So, you say one one true thing, two false things, and we have to guess demo? which one it is. What? Can you give us a demo? So, first? for example, um, I'll say just regular things so like... One of my participants uh, had blonde hair. One of my participants had black hair. One of my participants had red hair. You only had which one, one is which one was true? <laughs> I don't know, but like you see, you get you get the point. No effects. I'll right? just remove yeah, that. Point. Everybody knows two lies, one truth. So, whatever. Well, I, I'll edit it. Not inclusive. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So who wants to start? Okay, I'll start. So. First one uh, is I regularly drove four hours one way, including taking a ferry to get to a client's house. Okay. So the second one is during a therapy session, a child simultaneously urinated and pooped on me <laughs> while they were sitting in my lap. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Diaper yeah. or no diaper? No diaper. Ooh. Okay. And then finally, I taught a child to ask what questions. So, like, you know. Initiate, like, what is it? By arriving to their house each time in costume, such as, like, wearing a clown costume, cat, cowgirl, so they could ask me, like, who are you? (laughs) What are you wearing? I I, I vote for this one just because I want it to be true. (laughs) (laughs) I want want to imagine you (laughs) driving in the house as a clown. Yeah, what do you think? I think I said last one. You know, I think it's the... uh, the issues with the bowel movements because yeah. I feel like you wouldn't have a kid on your lap yeah. who was sick. No, but you asked to say which one is true, which not which one is true. false. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh which right. Which one do you think is true? The true one is the traveling. Travel? Okay. Which one? The is? third one. Yay! Yeah. Oh. But I will say I'm tricky because it's false because it was two hours. Not four. One way. Because I knew you worked out <laughs> in the Maritimes. And it included a ferry. It was this, Yeah, I was like, out in in Cape, it was uh, the Cape Breton Highlands. Yeah. 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 It was like, it was totally it was a getting very long. To Cape I would Britain. go yeah. there every, yeah, every couple of weeks and I would eat lunch at their house too. Aww. It was actually quite nice. It was my whole day. The, the disguises you would just like literally just come every day dressed up as something. Yeah. Because he it was, work? yeah, because he was very interested in kind of seeing, he was very interesting with like, people pulling into the driveway because the therapy would take place in his house. But we mm. were trying to figure out ways to, like, get him to ask, like, who, what, where questions and, like, just something to kind of spark interest in conversation yeah. and just getting out of the car in different costumes, which, by the way, was very awkward driving to <laughs> my work to the child's house because if I was pulled up at an intersection <laughs> wearing. Uh, wearing. Yeah. Costume. Yeah, yeah. But it was fun. I had fun. Yeah. And he learned... Did quite well. Learned all those skills, so. Yeah. Yeah. That just reminded me of this one mom 
as I was meeting her kid for the first time and I was like, you know, popping the little animals around going like, moo, and like chasing her little kid around the room with like these animals. And she just looks at me and goes, I'm in the wrong line of work. <laughs> it's true. You're always just basically getting dressed up and playing with toys. Right. Yeah, it's really fun. <laughs> but yeah, so your story about wearing costumes, I'm like, yeah, that's the right line though. of work. That's dedication, <laughs> yeah. I have to say. All right. I think what it is is no shame. There's no uh, shame. You literally no have shame. to check your ego at the door with totally. this job. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. So, well, for me, it's less... Uh, I, like it's mostly just I have participants and I make them sit in front of a computer with or without brain recording apparatus and they do stuff. Okay. Basically, so first one is I had a participant uh, vomit all over, uh, oh, well, no. vomit during the a testing session. Mm-hmm. The other one is that I got into a near fist fight with one of my participants so over some sort of disagreement. The third one is one of my participants was actually a celebrity. Who you have not quantified how yeah. much what's, celebrity what's celebrity is this like, like celebrity Canadian, Canadian celebrity. Okay, but what's okay, their but name? Like then? Sports celebrity, music celebrity. Uh, maybe I'll tell you if okay. Bruce Willis. He was here filming. <laughs> came to be in your study. <laughs> Wanted to get the ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> he needed that ten dollars. <laughs> coffee down at Cafe Depot. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think. Um Okay. I would say the celebrity one is true because you can say that it's like some minor celebrity. It's yeah, super minor. I feel like, <gasps> no, like I feel it's like a famous that, person. I think the true one is the fist fight. Well, no, I guess it has to be this, this celebrity because it's so minor. Celebrity? celebrity? Oh, it's false. Well, okay, but I I had originally said, okay, whatever. Yeah, but whatever. It, was the, it was the vomit. Oh, uh, it wasn't even the fist so fight. So tell us about the so fist fight one. There's no oh. fist fight. It's false. The true one was the Oh, vomit. yeah, sorry. I'm really bad. No, it was like... <laughs> <laughs> Do you need us to explain the rules? Oh, my it's because God. Why don't you dress up? It's because you say truth. so many lies. You know what we should do? Uh, I should. We should dress up it. to help you understand. Joke. So, Maela and I will dress up as lies. And you will dress up as oh the truth. Oh, my God. Oh, no. And this will help you to <laughs> learn this podcast. This is going to be probably This is already, we're already at 50 minutes of recording it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was like basically this guy. He can He comes in and he's like, "Green looks a little sick, you know." <laughs> uh, so I, I asked him like several times, "You okay? Like you're good? You look tired or whatever?" He's like, "No, no, I'm fine." And so basically, I test people in this EG room, which is an insulated room, and uh, it was summer and it was very hot and it could get very hot in that room. And basically, I put them in there, put the all the electrode stuff, so they're kind of wired, like their head is wired to the computer, so they can't really move much. And so I close the door, I test them, and then eventually, during a break, I open the door, and he's like, I'm not feeling well. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to take off the cap of your head, but it takes a bit of time. And then as I start taking off the cap of his head, he, like, he start making these vomit. Oh, no. like, I was like, oh, what's happening? He's like, a bucket, a bucket, I need a bucket. Oh, no. And I just, I... I looked around, I was like, what? And there was this garbage, thank God, or thank whoever. And there was this garbage. I just take the garbage, putting it under him, and he just throws up completely in the whole garbage. Like, and he could have just destroyed the whole room, but good luck. He, he was just in the room. It was great, great experience. Oh my gosh. How much disinfecting did you do after that one, Mayel? I just like, I just wiped. <laughs> baby wipes. I, yeah, I literally baby wiped the entire room. 
<laughs> and Bleach. <laughs> but poor guy too. Yeah, like, it must have been so like, embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, oh man, sweaty. Yeah. And I also lost the participant because he didn't complete the study. So. <laughs> oh, the worst of part. You uh, think about that. No, so, but seriously, yeah, poor guy. Uh, if you if you listen, uh, you're very unlikely to listen. But uh, if you listen, uh, <laughs> I'm really sorry about everything that happened. Hope you're feeling better. Yeah. So much empathy in this room right now. I know. Last one, Heather. So, I was doing some testing in schools. I took a kid out of class. And during one of my tasks, they took 40 minutes to complete it. And when I finally completed it with them, they were like, ha how fun was that? I just really didn't want to go back to class. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, when, so when testing my friends for my, uh, uh, for my study, uh, I had some friends who thought it would be funny to just like not do a good job doing my study because they just thought it was like for laughs and I had to eliminate some data points of friends. Awesome. Best friends in the world. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that's a lie for sure. But go ahead. Uh, and another participant, uh, I had them doing a rapid verbal naming task and in 30 seconds they only came up with two words starting with S and those words were smell and soup in 30 seconds. Those were the only words. <laughs> so what is the, what is the truth? Uh, I think it's the last one. <laughs> I think it's the last one. I do, I, you told me the story. <laughs> well, I told that story, but I purposely changed the words. Uh, yeah, so it's so a lie. It's a lie by kind of, but yeah, that was a funny day. But no, the truth was the kid who took 45 minutes and then told ah. me, ha ha, I just did this to stay out of class. Did it, what did you do? I eliminated the data point. <laughs> but because the kid was literally just like it's it was um, okay. Sorry, let me let me tell the story. Uh, this particular child had kind of a I don't know. I didn't look at any of these diagnoses before I took the kids from class, but when I looked at it later, based on the diagnosis, it did make sense the type of behavior that was exhibited during this testing thing. And probably and like had I known this a priori, I would have eliminated the data point, or I would not have tested this child basically. Oh, this sounds very non-scientific. <laughs> but what the person did was basically came in and they were supposed to place these tokens and she would just like pick up a bunch of tokens, stack them in funny piles. She would move them around. I wasn't allowed to repeat my stimuli. I wasn't able to give her very many instructions. It had to be standardized. I couldn't really stop her from doing these because they were considered strategies to complete the task. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. But I just sat there with my head in my hands just being like, for a very long time. But I and, also, and like she, you only understood that she was messing with you at the end when she told you. Like yes. you thought she had just a huge impairment. Well. You don't know. <laughs> I don't know. She, she, she was like. She fooled you. She was really happy she to not have been in class. Yeah. Uh, she's going to go far. Minutes. She's yeah. going to go far. Is she? <laughs> 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 I mean, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, she's going to go far. <laughs> Okay, can you tell us the story of the real story of the smell soup, please? <laughs> exactly the way you had told me at first. So, so okay, so this participant did really destroy me for the rest of my testing, actually, uh, because I couldn't not think about this for the rest of, like, for every future <gasps> participant, okay. I thought of this person. So the verbal naming task involves, basically, I say, 
Uh, it, it's in French. And I say, you know, I want you to think of every word you can that starts with the sound s. Okay. And there's a couple of different sounds that they have to do. So usually they'll say serpent, and in English they'll say snake. So that's the typical first response. And then from there, you kind of start thinking, they start going into these different semantic categories. And yeah, so this particular participant, I say words that start with s, and she goes, sex, soup. <laughs> And I mean, like, I almost lost it right there. I, I had to turn my face really far from the microphone. I was just thinking, like, this whole task is about semantic relations. And I'm like, in what way is her semantic relation going from sex to soup? The only I don't know. Two things in her life. You know? And soup. Two most important items. <laughs> Front of the brain, you know? Very nice. Okay, guys. Well, on these, on these words, I think uh, we... It's time to wrap up. Wrap it up. Uh, <laughs> We're getting the hook. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming. Uh, I'm sorry, was... you're gonna have to record this again. I'm laughing so hard. It's no, it's fine. <laughs> it was very nice. Uh, it's gonna be a lot of work to edit out <laughs> your stupidity. Stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'll start again. Oh. Your stupidity. I'll start again. Well. <laughs> Well, so thank you guys for coming. It was a very nice. Um, yeah, thank you for listening and uh, bearing with us. Hopefully I will have done a good enough editing job so you won't have uh, bleeding uh, ears oh. from laugh from very loud laughs. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I just did it again. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. You're fired up. So yeah, uh, thank you very much. Uh, again, same thing. I keep repeating that. If you want to be part of this podcast and have as much fun as these people here had, uh, you or can... Or more. Or more. Or what? Maybe not more. Even more fun. Yeah, it's possible. Is it uh, you can fun, fill out the form. Fun, fun, fun. There are links in the website, in the PGSS website, where you can say, I want to participate. Yeah. You should do it. Yeah. It's super fun. It's really fun, fun, exactly. fun, fun. Listen to the pros. And in the meantime, you can always like, subscribe, give five stars on iTunes, you know, make me super famous and super rich. And uh, yeah, thank you Kanye. very much. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. We out. <laughs> Oh no! Good luck, my man. Too bad. Goodbye. This is the end. <laughs> <laughs>